Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Zeitcast. Today, uh, I am honored to be able to share with you a conversation that's been in the works for a while. Our dear friend, who many of you have come to know and love, Dr. Brad Jerzak, who's been on the podcast already twice, uh, also teaches at St. At St. Stephen's University. And he had graciously invited myself, Cece Jones-Davis, and Malika Cox uh, my colleagues here at the table in Oklahoma City, uh, to lead a roundtable discussion on the topic of Jesus and justice in the 21st century for his course on peace and violence in the New Testament. So um, I thought that conversation was such an invigorating one, an exciting one, and convicting one for me personally that it was worth sharing with you all, uh, even though intended for the divinity students there. I, I felt like this would just be an important conversation for you to overhear. As I think all of us in some way are grappling with what to do with this whole conversation around Jesus and justice. And I just don't know anybody in my life who I feel like is more uh, capable of, of being good and faithful guides than Malika and Cece. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. want to remind you, as always, uh, that uh, it's so helpful when you like, when you share, when you review, certainly when you support on Patreon. And I'm so close, I promise, to rolling out uh, kind of new incentives and, and refreshing all that. Right now, it's, I know it's still even under the Son of a Preacher Man moniker. So we're about to roll out some new things there that I think will be exciting, even wanting to build more community around the Zeitcast. But so appreciate you guys listening as always. And I'm always thankfully standing right in front of me for our producer, Reese Black, who makes this sound uh, beautiful. And he's a beautiful soul. And y'all would love him. And sometimes we need to talk to Reese on the podcast because he's a delightful human being. Anyway, love you guys. Thanks so much for joining us and hope you enjoy today's edition of the Zeitcast. Well, good morning to our new friends at St. Stephen's University. It's such an honor to be with you all. And I have so much love for my friend, Dr. Brad Jerzak. We're just thrilled to have the opportunity to share a bit with you for your course on peace and violence in the New Testament. And today specifically, we're gonna be having a roundtable discussion on Jesus and justice in the 21st century. Not just because they're my friends here in Oklahoma City, there is nobody I'd rather have this conversation with than Cece Jones-Davis and Malika Cox, both of whom are on staff with us at the table. I just dabble with these things, but they they actually, they actually have content. Y'all have <laughs> stuff to say. Um, but really, I do learn so much uh, from them uh, in this whole arena of Jesus and justice, which is kind of a focal point for us at the table here in Oklahoma City. So I thought it might be good, and whoever wants to open first, um, whatever form of sort of opening statement, even sort of just kind of a riff on Jesus and justice in the 21st century, I'd love for y'all to just... Kind of, and we do this, we jam things out a lot together, just kind of open it up and, you know, just, just see where it goes. So, yeah. Um, well, everybody was looking quite kind of in my direction. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think I'll start. Um, you know, Jesus uh, and justice is actually my description on um, Instagram, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not because I believe I'm Jesus or because <laughs> I believe I'm like the personification of justice. But because I think that those two things are so important, and I don't think that um, you kind of have one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, here, I don't really know uh, what Christianity has, has been like in Canada, but I can say historically, here in the United States, um, a lot of times we, we have felt historically that we've had to choose mm -hmm. between Jesus and justice. Mm. Um, with, and... Um, not understanding that, um, you know, the kingdom of God has come um, in such a way that to establish uh, fairness and mm. equity mm. and mm. Um, peace, real peace, not just quiet, um, among, among people and people groups. And so um, for me, you know, I think, I think this is such an important conversation. And my theology, my, my form of Christianity is uh, cannot be vacant of either one. That mm. there's an internal life of faith, but that but then there's also an external life of faith that is expressed by how well I love my neighbor or not, mm. um, and an external expression of faith that asks good questions and not just questions around charity, which mm, would right. be you know um, how much does it cost. Uh, 
what project can I do, but why? The questions of justice, in my opinion, always ask why. Mm -hmm. Why is there a need for this project? Why why is there such poverty in this community? And um, that work of justice really, for me, gets down to figuring out the messiness of, of the work of how to fix the problems that create the fruit that we see and we then go mm. try to deal with as church folks a whole lot. Mm. That's really good. That's so good. Um, when you were talking, I was thinking about the scripture at Psalm eighty nine fourteen that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne and how often um, Christianity has, at least Western Christianity, particularly American Western Christianity, has made you choose, like you said. Um, but honestly, it's holistic and integrated Christianity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Justice is, in a sense, the kingdom, because we were talking earlier about scripture. Um, you can't have one without the other. And so we start to look at justice. We need to look at it um, in every realm. I think uh, in the United States, and I might be different in Canada. I know you guys have had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but um, we've really separated a macro level justice. Yeah. Um, from mezzo civil society to a micro. And really in Christianity in America, we've been told that all of our justice should be individual, be nice, mm-hmm. treat people well. But we've ignored the macro level justice which comes with the questions of why why are people in poverty why do people feel that they're being racially discriminated against why are there missing and murdered women across the country so these are things we need to start looking at that justice is holistic it's integrated it is from whether it's the government top down whether it's a grassroots organization when it comes to following jesus justice will be holistic and integrated into every level of our lives. Mm. That's so good, Malika. I've been thinking um, some here lately because I feel like even the word justice obviously is defined different places, different ways. But um, And I don't remember what brought this up for me a few weeks ago, but um, where I felt the need to sort of explain my sort of baseline understanding of justice in Scripture. And for me, I always come back to one verse in particular, and that's that, that idea from the prophet Isaiah that the time is coming in Christ where the mountains mm. will be made low and the valleys will be exalted. Yeah. To me, there's it's just such a comprehensive um, image in terms of there is a fundamental inequality and inequity. And the work of the kingdom, the work of the Christ in particular, is bringing mountains low, exalting valleys, which I think, you know, makes it interesting then because the gospel is whether or not the gospel is good news kind of depends on where you're standing because if you're on the top of the mountain then this is not really good news but if you're in the valley well all right the valleys are going to be exalted and part of why i think conversations around jesus and justice in particular then get volatile you know is that and and especially for those of us maybe who have been in a kind of christianity where we're used to being on the top of the mountain (laughs) and and there are real reasons why justice would not be a pressing concern uh, because it's you know why when you're on the mountain would you want the valleys to be exalted but i think that 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 kind of leveling that kind of reckoning is so important and the and i think the and is really important which i think both of both of you are speaking to is the, the jesus and justice that for us it's not you know, I don't want to speak for us, but I think all of us are on. We, we have conversations like this a lot. For us, our understanding of justice, I think all is like it's it's so integral to Jesus. Like it just it just cannot be separate. It's not like we're have these ideas about justice somehow despite Jesus or despite somebody. Like it's precisely because of Jesus right. Absolutely. that we've come Absolutely. to see the world the way that we do. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that we are in a in a time uh, when we are, so many of us are grappling with a new way of understanding the Bible and a new way of understanding Christ, right? Um, Because as New Testament um, believers, we know, you know, particularly, uh, you know, in different places around the world, I can speak to American um, context, you know, that, that same New Testament, that same scripture has been used so violently mm. against uh, people groups, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, that same New Testament scripture. Where we, the, I mean, the same Bible that we find right. Jesus, um, you know, saving the woman who's about to be stoned to death uh, for committing adultery or the same Jesus mm. who tells uh, Peter to put down his sword goes on and on. That same, that same Bible has the words of Paul 
um, that you know has been very oppressive to women over time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The same um, the same epistles that you know seem to say that you know slavery was okay mm-hmm. um, and used to really you know keep. Slay a stronghold of slavery in America for 246 years. These are, you know, these are ways the Bible and New Testament scripture has been used in violent ways yeah. um, against people groups um, to to oppress and to mm-hmm. and to hold them down. So I think I think one of the reasons why this whole conversation about justice is still so sketchy is because. Um, because there's a there's a uh, there's a new awakening of sorts, and I don't know how new it is, but I would say that it's it's you know it's fairly recent when we talk about the history of the church. You know, there's a new awakening of 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 categorizing or prioritizing the words of Jesus over all others. Yes, because absolutely. I think I think there was such a time when you know we held the words of Paul right up here with the words of Jesus yeah. and you know everyone else and everybody else's words but the words written in red mm-hmm. um, people are I think are, beco- are becoming awake to this notion that what Jesus said is probably the most important thing yeah. and we need to kind of really focus on that and if if he says something that seems to contradict mm-hmm. what Paul says or someone mm-hmm. else says, then we might want to go with Jesus. Absolutely. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Absolutely. So, and that's yeah. a new, I think that's new. That's yeah, like absolutely. a new way of thinking about the scripture for mm-hmm. most people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it strikes me as kind of like an, an uh, I don't mean to jump in, like no, I was, this, this is a fast footnote. <laughs> I, I, you're so, I think you're so right, Cece, and I think especially for folks who are students of Brad, I think Brad is one of the best articulators of that kind of Jesus-centered hermeneutic. But I think for a lot of people, it really is new. I mean, I don't think it's new in terms of like, you know, patristic early church stuff, but largely for those of us, which is pretty, which is almost all of us here, I think in North America, who are in some part, you know, part of the lineage of the Protestant Reformation, it feels like kind of the undoing of the Reformation that way, because that's the Reformation that you have such an emphasis on, the forensic legal language of Paul and justification as a forensic judicial act. Mm -hmm. And the more you go there when it's all like courtroom imagery and that's kind of exalt, which, you know, and I think there are of course better interpretations of Paul, but I think Paul read through the lens of the reformers has just dominated the landscape for such a long time. And I absolutely think it's new and that it's revolutionary that people are now coming to a place where they have a sense of permission to read Paul through Jesus, to read Revelation through Jesus, to read the Old Testament, certainly through the lens of Jesus, which is way more faithful to like the early church. But in terms of like probably even the last four or 500 years, it has not been the kind of reading that's won the day. Mm -hmm. Malika, please jump in. Well, I do think it's a revival of the words of Jesus that we're seeing, and I think that's so important because good hermeneutics is actually understanding what God is saying throughout the ages. And we look at these ancient cultures. We have 66 books over thousands and thousands of years, and we do want to exergete what God is saying through the scriptures and not try to take out oppressive ancient practices. Um, Paul may have said, I don't permit women to teach, but there's a lot that goes into what was happening during the time with the Diana practices. And so you have to exegete that, but he also said slaves return to your abusive masters. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, those are cultural practices that in 2019, yeah. we're not going to look at that. But if Jesus, we can actually not only look at what he's saying, we can look at what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Women were in positions of leadership. Mary sat in the place of the rabbis. He had yeah. women disciples. He had women paying for his ministry equals. Um, during that time, we have to look at the fact that he was not a full citizen. Mm-hmm. Rome was occupying the land. He was mm-hmm. born into a place where he was the oppressed. Yeah. Um, if we don't start to look at the context and the history, then we can totally misuse and exploit anything Jesus said, anything Paul That's said. Right. We have to look at context. We have to look at justice during that time. And then as we look at what God is saying throughout the ages, we bring that into 2019. Mm. Women were not considered full human beings. Women were mm. considered property. We can't go into 2019 and try to bring oppressive practices of ancient people into yes. this time. Right. We have to look at what God was saying in that. 
um, and look at the continuing human story that Jesus personified right. and that Jesus incarnated. And in that, what Jesus said and what Jesus did, I believe, is hierarchical and um, primary in our true hermeneutics mm. and what so we get Lord out God. of justice. So. Yeah. Oh, you're looking at me. <laughs> I felt like you'd have something else to say about that, Cece. No, she, she covered it. No, it's so good. Well, it's so good. Um, and I think that notion that, and it's part of why I, I think Jesus, for me, always remains so central. I know plenty of people who care about justice, who feel like somehow they've had to put away their faith. I, I always find that so unfortunate because it's interesting to me, not that there aren't any texts that are problematic at all, but how specifically in the Gospels, I mean, the Jesus stories are gold and there's some rough edges yeah. places. And I think like, you know, we need to grapple with those as well. But I just like consistently the witness of Jesus. And I think the whole story of scripture rather understood, it's always been a liberation story. Absolutely. I mean, the God of the Exodus has always been the God of the oppressed. That's always where the story has been moving. But it does certainly get complicated, especially I think for people in North America context where so often that story has been co-opted mm -hmm. by empire, where so often that um, the, those, those same verses, those same scriptures have been used in a way to depress rather than liberate. And I feel like that right now, a lot of what's happening is we really are kind of contending for the soul of a thing here to say like, no, no, like we're, we're not willing to concede that this has ever been about injustice or oppression, but that this has always been mm -hmm. a liberating story about a liberating savior. Mm -hmm. But I think it, again, maybe this is a good direction to go. And I feel like y'all are uniquely qualified to, to do this in terms of some of the work that each of you are doing here and other places, specifically then bringing this into the 21st century and knowing that, you know, uh, to, to, taking the sort of timelessness of the message of Jesus into a very complicated time and moment politically and culturally. What, yeah. No what do we do with that? Um, well, I definitely feel as um, somebody who's grown up in two worlds, my dad's black, my mom's white, they were actually, it was illegal for them to be married when they, when they, they came to uh, Chicago to get married. They came to Oklahoma City during their honeymoon and it was illegal for them to actually be married to people who were in love. And so for people who had grown up in church, um, they kind of, they, they had, to, they just decided they were going to be great people mm -hmm. and they were going to uh, fight for justice, but they couldn't be a part of the church. So if you start to look at some of the ways the church has sided over the past <laughs> hundreds of years, you know, yeah. the church put Galileo in prison, the church mm -hmm. stood against, um, uh, integration, the church stood against, um, lots of civil rights issue obviously the lgbtq community comes up so when you start to look at where jesus was when he sided with the leper or the marginalized woman mm. when he sided with um those who were under occupation and then we look at the church having gone the other direction yeah. um i think you could start to look at okay if we're going to be followers of christ in 2019 where do we see people oppressed mm. uh, jesus was clearly um I believe killed by religion and uh, and power, corrupt religion and corrupt, corrupt power in state-sponsored death penalty. Yes. And I feel that's something that, as um, the church again, we've been on the wrong side of. And I know Cece can talk more mm -hmm. about some of her advocacy for criminal justice reform as well as uh, anti-death penalty work. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is we're in 2019, we're followers of Christ. We're seeing a, a, a neo-civil rights movement come up. Yes. And we have to decide which side that we're going to be on because I think it was James Cone who said uh, the person who is lynching somebody and the person being lynched both claim Christ. Yeah. Yes. So we got to make a decision yeah. on which side of that we're going to fall. Mm -hmm. Are we going to align ourselves with Black Lives Matter? Are we going to align ourselves with Me Too? Are we going to align ourselves with people who are oppressed, who are standing mm -hmm. against tyranny and oppression, mm -hmm. or are we going to decide to? Um, basically stand with the empire so yeah. there's a lot of work that we're both doing i work with you know organizations here uh, that are doing stuff with the international resettled refugee community i work heavily in gender equality issues um and doing work around restorative justice and transitional justice and cc i think you should talk a little about your yeah. work yeah yeah so um 
I think, yeah, Malika is right. You know, we 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 have a strange thing. I don't know if this happens around the world, but we have a really strange thing here in America where, um, you know, we consider ourselves a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's totally, by the way, debatable, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, it's totally debatable. Um, but we we largely say that we are a Christian nation, but we have some very questionable practices in terms of our policies. Uh, for example, um, one of the things here in the United States right now that's really big is criminal justice reform. You all might um, <clears throat> kind of hear some of those things as you as you look at what's going on over here. And um, in essence, you know, the United States incarcerates more people than anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Where we happen to be, where we live in Oklahoma, you know, Oklahoma incarcerates uh, is incarcerates more people uh, in than anywhere else in the United States. So that means that Oklahoma incarcerates more people than any other place in the world. Yeah. And um, but we are we are in the we are a part of what we in America call the Bible Belt, mm-hmm. like the area of the United States that is like most Christian. You know, um, the statistically, you know, the area where most people go to church um, more often, more people have more value toward the Bible than other parts of the country, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. More conservative kind of um, Christian values areas right so we are what we call in the bible belt and it's been a really interesting social experiment um over this last year to be involved in criminal justice reform issues in oklahoma particularly i'm doing work around the death penalty and i've come to understand how um how married Mm -hmm. american conservative christians are to punitive mm-hmm. uh, justice, yeah. right? So we are in a place that, you know, we want to be very, very hard on crime. Our politicians, um, you know, run their campaigns based on, like, being hard on crime. Yeah. And being hard on crime here means that, you know, um, for not even nonviolent offenses, like writing a bad check or having marijuana or, you know, some of these things that don't necessarily come harm to, cause harm to others, you can literally go to prison for ten years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary in the worst way possible. Yeah. Um, and so, but but that is our interpretation of being hard on crime. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a wave of of a movement here and across the country where we're really having to take a close look at not just our practices, mm. right, in terms of why we incarcerate people the way that we do, right, why we don't have a more, um, a, a system that, that provides more reformation, transformation to the hearts and minds of people, mm. um, why we are so punitive, but, but really like the principles behind it, like what are our values? Mm. Mm-hmm. What are the values that we hold as American, and I'll say American Christians, Mm. what are our values that kind of um, cause us to support and lift up these systems as ideals, right? And the truth is that we are very violent people, Mm. you know? The truth is, is that we are really, really punitive. The truth is that we... Um, we love an eye for an eye. Yeah. We truly do, do. Because in Oklahoma, as I go around talking about the death penalty and why I don't really, I don't feel like that's a Christian practice at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the first scripture that people will bring up, you know, is the, the Bible says an eye for an eye. Mm-hmm. Forget Matthew, what, yeah. I don't know, 20 something, 24 mm-hmm. or something like that, that says Jesus, the words of Jesus says, but You've been told an eye for an eye, mm-hmm. but I say unto you yeah. that you resist not evil, but mm-hmm. whosoever turn to you, mm-hmm. a cheek turn to him also, the other cheek. Like, mm-hmm. like, like totally not wanting to deal with the words of Jesus right. in these in this yeah. context. And that's and it's because um, you know, we we have we just tend to have a violent nature. You know, we tend to have a punitive nature. And that's something that I am working on and hoping that Christ 
will help us in America really repent from mm-hmm. and uh, change our hearts about. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, here in Oklahoma, so uh, Oklahoma is number three in the United States for uh, executions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in the United States usually kill people by the gas chamber, um, lethal injections. Uh, some states even still do the electric chair. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the those are the main gas chamber and lethal injection are the and we think those things are humane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really really grateful for the work of the counter work of people like Brian Stevenson, mm-hmm. um, who is a, an attorney here in the United States and is doing work around justice and race a, a long time. He runs the Equal Justice Initiative down in Alabama, mm-hmm. and um, he wrote a book called Just Mercy. Um, and also Shane Claiborne, who's a Christian activist who wrote a book called Executing Grace. And these are the kind of people that are helping us to see our violence for what it is yeah. and to see if we can't turn it around for the sake of Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. So good. Um, I think it's really interesting because we are so heavily punitive um, justice here in Oklahoma. And uh, we have the worst stats in the nation yeah. for incarceration, for women, for children. And I really believe that is a a bad understanding of the gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The gospel is not punitive. Mm-hmm. We can see Jesus throughout the scripture saying Jesus is uh, the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the bread of life. But I believe Jesus is restorative justice. Yes. In the gospel, we do not get what we deserve. Yeah. We, we get what we get. need. And so Jesus is actually a walking example of of we get what we need. And that and if you look at the root word of justice in the New Testament, it's mishpah. Mm-hmm. Mishpah was the justice that helped the um, that was put into the tithe so that the um, orphans and widows were taken care of, yeah. so that we didn't um, reap all of the uh, crop and and the widow like Ruth could come along and glean. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff was interwoven into the Old Testament because Mishpah always meant restorative justice. When it says that justice and righteousness are God's throne, it's restorative justice. It's Mishpah. Yeah. But the problem is with the Greek language. Uh, justice became just, and that was a punitive justice. So again, we're looking at something that's been translated incorrectly, and we have bad uh, hermeneutics in that. So now we find these kind of conservative, punitive spaces of American Christianity that totally rejects the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It totally rejects uh, this concept of a year of jubilee, which was God's Mm -hmm. plan so that there wouldn't be wealth inequality. Mm -hmm. Everything that was written in to ensure there wasn't this huge asymmetrical balance of wealth and power, that restorative justice has been eliminated in Mm -hmm. the um, kind of this new Christian walk because we've looked at some of Paul's teachings, and I really think that we elevated them over Jesus, but I also believe we misinterpreted them. Yes, for sure. So I think that it's like coming back to, okay, if we can do criminal justice reform from the root of the restorative mm-hmm. justice, because it's really the religious places in, in America that have these kind of really harsh sentencing over incarceration, mm-hmm. overpopulation of incarcerated people. And so we have to be able to, mm-hmm. to interpret Jesus is restorative justice. Mm-hmm. He brings what we need, not what we deserve. Mm-hmm. And until we get that even on a church level or a, a theological level on our own, it's how are we going to integrate that to every society, every part of society? Like that's so helpful. And one of the things I'm thinking in terms of kind of bridging some of this some is that one of the things that we see from living here in Oklahoma, because I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know if I ever would have thought before that living in Oklahoma could make you more of an expert in something. But here, here's what we really know: living in Oklahoma, right. retributive justice outright doesn't work. So it's not like we're just going around like you know, shame, shame, shame. No, this is the best. It's. It outright does it. It's a disaster because one of the things I think that, you know, we do have a bit of a vantage point kind of living here. And I don't even mean this to be harsh, but for me, it's so connected. Retributive justice and prosperity theology, which Oklahoma is the mecca of prosperity theology. I mean, it just is between, you know, everything around. And I don't mean this is blanket condemnation, but Earl Roberts, Kenneth Hagin, between Tulsa and Oklahoma City, like this is like the word of faith, prosperity theology, Mecca. And these things are so connected because what is prosperity theology if not Mm -hmm. another way of saying that people get what they deserve. Mm -hmm. If you are wealthy 
It's because you've made the right choices. If you are blessed materially, then you deserve to be blessed. If you're not, uh, if you're not blessed in this way, if you are in prison, if you are poor, Mm -hmm. then it's your own damn fault. And ultimately, I feel like that's um, that's actually what we see here. And I know I think for a lot of people, this is hard to even imagine. But that kind of prosperity theology actually has tentacles in our legal system here. I mean, it absolutely does. Oh, there is, absolutely. It is not incidental that we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt where so many people have a shared language of faith in this way and that we also are, are kind of the, the worst example in the world when it comes to retributive, retributive sure. justice. Like those things are part and parcel. Absolutely, yeah. That's powerful stuff. I believe that bad theology kills yeah. And um, and that's what we see at the Mecca of incarceration is mm. the also Mecca of prosperity gospel, punitive justice. And you see the worst stats in the world for women as well. We are mm. um, the most incarcerated person on the planet are indigenous women in Oklahoma. Mm. And we think about that in the sake of, of how this kind of uh, top down Christianity uh is so prosperity gospel is so harming to individuals that yeah. you know it's like anybody marginalized is is crushed and i think that's even you see that in the old testament there's always we're willing to sacrifice some people to have the empire theology yeah uh, that was one of the things that the prophets came mm. and said stop sacrificing the children in this mm. country we're willing to sacrifice refugee children we're willing mm. to sacrifice mm. black men's bodies we're willing to sacrifice mm. the poor and the marginalized so we can stay on top and somehow marry that with a bible that has yeah. the perfect example of god being co- contradictory yeah yeah that's that's amazing, Lika. CC, you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, um, as I as I was listening, um, I was thinking of the ways in which I can visually see a tide turning, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. in terms of how we think about our Christian practice here in the United States and how we. Are, you know, we're, we are, a lot of us are beginning to integrate our Jesus and justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think yeah. about uh, Princeton uh, Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Princeton, of course, is one of the oldest um, institutions here in the United States. And among, uh, it's a, what we call an Ivy League school and among one of the most prestigious, uh, prestigious universities here. Um, Princeton just... Um, has been doing a lot of work in the last couple of years in terms of addressing um, their connection to historical violence mm. in the form of um, in the form of reparations. Mm. So, as uh, as an institution, they um, have have gone through a process of confessing mm-hmm. how their university uh, has been involved in the United States tra- uh, slave trade. Mm how their institution um, benefited from the practice of slavery by and through investments they made to Southern um, banks in the Southern part of the United States where the slave trade practice was uh, most prevalent. Um, and then and then the, the practices of segregation uh, and discrimination that they, that were, you know, that were very uh, apparent on their uh, in their institution or on their campuses after slavery. Mm-hmm. So um, they're going through this reparations process, which you know has been um, a kind of a growing, growing movement in the United States for you know over over a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's never been popular. It's mm-hmm. the I, the conversation has, is probably more popular. Uh, reparations in the United States right now than it has ever been yeah. in my in, in, from what I can see but Princeton for example has been taking a lead on this conversation around reparations from a theological um, point of view mm-hmm. and they have um, don't they have set aside to, I think it's 27 million dollars um, for reparations so that will come in the I don't know exactly how they're using that money but I know in part, yeah. It's um, it is going to fund, continue to fund the Black Church Studies program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to continue to offer scholarships to students 
Um, and so, you know, that to me is like such a bright side of what mm-hmm. I see, even in still kind of the, the murkiness of what we're working through yeah. in terms of figuring out what it means to be Christian mm-hmm. and as Americans um, and, and like doing this tug of war here <coughs> among each other. Like, like, no, he's my Jesus. No, no, he's mm-hmm. my Jesus. Like we totally had this tug of war going on in the church here in the United States. But like this is a for me is a bright a bright moment yes. right of uh, and even criminal justice reform even having the conversation lifted up and elevated to the point that it is here in the United States where we realize that no it might not be the greatest thing to be incarcerating people uh, indefinitely in, yeah. in inhumane conditions mm-hmm. Um, it might not be the greatest to feed people slop. It might, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, people might need sunlight, you know, mm-hmm. um, really like coming to a place where we realize the practices that we have had in place are not humane, mm-hmm. are definitely not Christian. Yeah. And uh, that that can that has its bright spots, too. Mm. Yeah, I think like the uh, it's so interesting, Cece, because in terms of the popularity of the reparations uh, conversation right now, yeah. literally on the way here this morning, I'm listening to NPR, and not only were they talking about reparations, they were talking about Princeton. They were specifically talking, and like with uh, Divinity School faculty and all that. Mm-hmm. So it's that's where that conversation is exciting to me because, you know, because it is so controversial, I have no idea where any of it actually lands in terms of policy. But it's so exciting because I think to talk about reparations at all means you're going to you almost have to get into the right questions or at least better questions about justice and what justice really means. That's why that conversation is so important, because this whole idea of having to confront the past to deal with the past that, you know, because and this is another way where I think bad theology kills here is that it's so uniquely American to have this sort of. We have kind of an ahistorical, apolitical Jesus, and I think for a lot of uh, kind of white evangelicals in particular, when you're not tethered to a particular tradition, there's this idea that we're just kind of making this thing up as we go. What does the past have to do with anything? Oh, no, we just... You know, this is just kind of me and Jesus. We're figuring out. It's like there's no there's no sense of history right. at all, good or bad. It's like as if this moment is the only one that's ever existed. And I think that's part of what's happening with the whole reparations conversation and why it is exciting to me is I feel like that narrative is being challenged. That somehow we're an ahistorical people, that the past doesn't matter, that, that, that somehow we're born in such a way to where already there is this kind of leveling where mountains are low and valleys are exalted. It's just, you know, it's just not true. And historically, it just doesn't work. And it's so, so, as you said, it, it kills. It's dangerous in people's lives. And how sad is it that so often Christians are the one who, especially, again, white evangelicals in North America, are the ones who underwrite this, who perpetuate it and who move it forward. So I do feel like there's actually a kind of judgment happening right now on that. I think it's merciful, right. but it is definitely divine judgment of God showing us a mirror right now and forcing us to look at ourselves and to look at you know what we've created, what we've perpetuated. I don't mean to get preachy. No, you're great. No, that's good. I think when it comes to reparations, that's a that's in the context of transitional justice, which is dealing with justice post atrocity, post genocide, mm. post war. And what's really interesting is that it's kind of new to us, but globally, obviously, Canada has had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission when it came to the Indigenous boarding schools and the atrocities and crimes against humanity that were, mm. were taking place there. But what we don't understand is that, like Germany, which had the Holocaust. Uh, they've been doing transitional justice for a while. They've been talking about the Holocaust um, in German, Germany and the Nazis. They, they put their, uh, in sixth grade or in primary school, children learn about the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, when it comes to South Africa, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela, you know, they did the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and they dealt with uh, apartheid through uh, forgiveness and amnesty, which has its benefits and, and their some forced forgiveness, which doesn't mm. it does not work. But the whole point is, this is a large conversation globally. The world is having, and yet in North America, we we have not had those conversations really no. around slavery, and we have not had these conversations around um, the indigenous genocide. Yeah. But what's interesting is that 
South Africa's apartheid and Nazi Germany took a lot of their cues from Jim Crow. Mm. And so until we can acknowledge that some of the worst atrocities in the world were actually wow. taken from the United States, wow. from our era of Jim Crow, and if you look at the history of Jim Crow, I mean, if you look at the slave codes and the black codes and you look at the gerrymandering and you look at redlining, and there's, these are all terms that have happened here, we don't talk about it. We don't take our primary school kids and put them through slavery. Yeah. The Holocaust of the Africans, yeah. Holocaust of slavery, and then of Jim Crow, and then of the lynching memorials. And we expect to live peacefully, yeah. the coexistence, this peaceful existence, where we haven't even dealt with the fact that there's intergenerational trauma, mm -hmm. particularly mm -hmm. in non-voluntary minorities, which would be the indigenous population, the African-American community, where we have in our DNA mm. trauma that hasn't been resolved, and I don't believe it will be resolved until we confront it, until we uh, look at restoring things and repairing things, and that's going to be macro level as well as grassroots organization. Yeah. And we cannot go forward. We will continue continue to have unrest yeah. and I know you talk a lot about this and maybe you would share just on you know we go through cycles and and I will say this when it comes to time I really don't understand white evangelicals who are so uh separated context and history if you're going to claim the God of Jacob the mm -hmm. God of Isaac the God of Abraham then you're already looking at uh, ancestry incorporated into your faith. Yeah. Jesus had a genealogy. Yeah. We, uh, we look at the genealogies and we somehow are gonna be blind to the fact that we don't have a history, particularly as Christian people who supported slavery, who supported um, Jim Crow, who supported the uh, uh, basic LGBTQ oppression and women's um, oppression. So we have to have a history mm -hmm. and we have to recognize that things are cyclical, including time. We are a round planet we yeah. go around a round sun yeah. we have 24 hours in a day that continues to repeat four seasons not a billion and we look everything is cyclical mm -hmm. so i think it's something and if you would mind sharing that uh, that vision that idea yeah. that god gave you i believe oh, is yeah. really powerful so, yeah so and cool. i know we're we're needing to close up soon um so maybe we can start wrapping up um starting here um prophetically as i kind of do um justice work um, particularly dealing with so much of what we've talked about today because it's so, so prevalent and, and uh, significant here in the United States mm -hmm. around race. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I t obviously, I talk a lot about race and faith. And uh, in my talks, you know, talking about race in America is, uh, can be a, it's daunting, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's complex and none of us, all know what to do about this, you know? Um, none of us really know all of how to make it right. And so what the church's response has been over time a lot here in the United States is we just need Jesus. Well, that's true, yeah. but what does that mean? Right. You know, what does that look like? Yeah. It looks like justice, mm -hmm. right? It looks like love out loud, love mm -hmm. in public. Um, and one of the things that I say a lot in dealing with this, the, the complexities of the race conversation is that, you know, I, I often have this vision of, you know, what it means to live in a world uh, that is sick, mm. right? And that we have this, this almighty God who is more than able to, um, I guess, wash it all away and fix it all. But the dynamic of what that would mean in one context at one time with such an extraordinary God yeah. could put too much pressure on humanity to survive what right. would it mean for god to clean us all up mm. at one time how could we survive such a process how mm. could we survive such a stimulation and i see god um, as malika talks about these cycles i see god mm. coughing allowing us to cough up the sicknesses of our world yes. a little bit by little bit and um, God gently kind of just patting us on the back, just mm. saying, there you go, mm. you know, get it up, get it out. You know, that's what happened here in the United States with the civil rights movement, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and, and there was a lot of, of healing. There was a lot of work that came out of that. Mm. And here's where we are again when mm -hmm. we talk about LGBTQ, when we talk about um, race relations and reparations, when we talk about criminal justice reform, mm -hmm. women's equality, all these kinds of things. It is God, in my estimation, yet again, pat us, patting us on the back saying, yes. that's right. Get it up, get yeah. it out, 
it's so time to get healed a little bit more. And so, so the, um, mm. you know, the answer to or the response to violence is a process of healing, mm. you know, mm. um, that doesn't all take place at one time, but that God allows us to share from generation to generation and build upon each other's stories. Yeah. Um, so, and those are the, the, that struggle in part is what connects us yeah. um, and, and brings us low, makes us humble so that we can... Um, Remember to look back mm-hmm. to see how far God has brought mm-hmm. us. So good to see. That's that's so powerful. I mean, that's worth the price of mission right there, isn't that whole <laughs> that whole image prophetically the and it, and to see that while it is it might feel like a severe mercy or a hard mercy, it's absolutely the mercy of God. These oh, things yeah. are being well. that's yeah. stirred up. Things that have been in darkness are being brought into the light. Yeah, and that's and why does God ever illuminate or expose anything? Well it's never to shame. No. Right. It's only for the sake of healing. Mm. I know we do need to wrap, but I love, Malika, I want to kick this to you finally to close this out. Because I, I think especially like when there's these moments in culture or even pop, popular culture, especially where we can explore these kind of intersections. This has been on my mind for several days. I thought it'd be worth bringing it up to everybody in the class here because I feel like, you know, it's, specifically as we talk about all of these things from our own context here in Oklahoma, I just thought this was so fascinating. I'm a huge fan of the 1980s comic book series slash graphic novel, The Watchman, Alan Moore. It's a genius. Um, very, all these really interesting political implications. So there's this new HBO show on Watchmen that's kind of takes the essential premise of that, but kind of, but takes it in a whole different direction. And, and there's only two episodes, and I think it's amazing this far. But here's something I found fascinating. The very first episode, and this frames the context for the whole show, deals with what happened in Tulsa in the 1920s. And I've seen so many people on social media say, I've never heard that story in my life. I've heard a number of people in Oklahoma say, I had never heard of this or only heard it mentioned, which I find interesting. In Oklahoma, because I lived in Tulsa for three years, nobody wants to talk about this. And so even that thing of like stuff in the past and things that haven't been healed being illuminated, I thought how interesting that a TV show on HBO about, you know, sort of fictitious superheroes, even that is illuminating Mm -hmm. something that happened in Oklahoma in the 1920s that has been more or less buried in history. I think has tremendous implications for things that have happened here, but I'd love you to just speak to that, maybe as a microcosm kind of example Mm -hmm. of what's gone wrong and how important it is that we do actually revisit the past in this way. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> that's one of my, um, something that's really strong in my heart. So I grew up in Oklahoma. I took Oklahoma history. I have never heard of the Black Wall Street bombing or you can call it the Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, and then I was in New York working at a college there and we were doing, uh, I think it was uh, February, doing Black History Month. And somebody was talking about um, having done a paper on Black Wall Street and the professor denied and said this never happened. Mm. And I'm like, wait, wait, Tulsa? Like, I generally had never heard. Of, I had to go to New mm. York to hear about the Black Wall Street bombing. And wow. so what happened, which is we're going up to almost in May of uh, 2021, it'll be 100 years since this ethnic cleansing. Mm. And I will say that um, it's an attempted ethnic cleansing, according to UN and ICC, uh, be, and be, it was called the Tulsa Race Riots for years, somehow mm. implicating there was some sort of symmetry or yeah. equivalence. It was not. It was an attempted ethnic cleansing, and the first time in the United States, actually, military dropped bombs on its own citizens. Mm. So in 1921, I think it was May 31st to June 1st, there was an all-out um, attack on a very influential, wealthy, and prosperous black community in mm. Greenwood, Tulsa. And this is one of those things, too, this whole kind of like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But this is during the Jim Crow era all over the country. If you were a successful black person, then you were killed, lynched, and your money was taken. I will say personally, I had black family in Memphis who had a prosperous blacksmith um, business that were rode out, out of town by the KKK. Mm. So this is kind of, this is not just Tulsa, Oklahoma, but this is probably one of the worst. So uh, there was some some story of a black man and a white woman in the elevator together that maybe he tripped or there was just a false accusation, I believe firmly that there was some sort of misconduct from this black man and white woman. It was an excuse. You can go through mm. and look at the histories for this attack on the black community mm. because 
basically, if you can keep um, marginalized people at odds with each other, then you can keep people down. Because obviously the white community there was very jealous of the black prosperous community. Because really before segregation, this is integration, there, there were very successful black communities. Yeah. Because the black communities weren't allowed in, they created their own communities, they created wealth, and then there was often jealousy. So basically, in these two days where um, there were basically a black community came to get their uh, a person who's been accused out of jail with shotguns, white community came, and it, there was collusion with the government because at some point you'll see writings from people like John Hope Franklin saying, we hear bombs from the sky. Is the government involved in this? And so the, mm. the guard was, came out to attack the black community. Mm. Over, uh, I think like, I think like 300 people were killed. There aren't actually specific um, stats just because it was hidden. Yeah. And so we're thinking it was something to the fact of like 30,000 like uh, square acres of of neighborhoods were burnt down, houses wow. gone, people displaced. 3,000 people were injured, 300 people killed, and there were people who lingered Oof. in jails for months and months and months. They weren't fed, they were starved to death. Mm. It was one of the worst atrocities on it. Like, if it were today, it would be considered an ethnic cleansing, and we would consider putting military support in. Mm. It was one of the most horrific things, and I didn't learn about it in Oklahoma history. So mm. going back to that, how do we deal with post-atrocity? Yeah. A hundred years later, I thought that coughing was happening. It's like, you're not gonna be a prosperous state of Oklahoma. You will have the worst stats if you continue to bury. We have in Oklahoma, the indigenous, uh, uh, basically the end of the Trail of Tears, this displacement, which brought a lot of indigenous people to Oklahoma. We have the land run, which took away um, people's land. So we had, again, displacement. We had genocide. We had the boarding schools. We had Black Wall Street. And we have the worst stats for women. So again, it comes back to we need to actively pursue justice as a Christian people and as a uh, Oklahomans, as Americans, as Canadians. You have to continue or you will continue to see death. I mean, it just kind of goes back to the two trees in the garden. You have the tree of life, mm -hmm. which produces life. And you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is duality, which is where racism and misogyny and all these things come from. It's like, I'm better than you. We're going to mm -hmm. see who's good, who's evil. And we can. So basically, it comes back to we have to continue to see the mishpah, yeah. the restorative justice of Jesus in every area, which is we get what we need. And through that comes restoration and reparation and healing and forgiveness mm. and possibly um, reconciliation. Mm. That's good. So good, Malika. And as you can see, I mean, the Holy Spirit is working. And it's so, I know it keeps me so hopeful to be able to do what I'm doing uh, here in Oklahoma City with people like Cece and Malika who just inspire me endlessly. And it just... To me, it's such a it's such a picture of the whole story, you know, that the gospel really has never been about some angry God saying, you know, if you're naughty, then I'm going to throw you into hell. We see what judgment looks like over and over again. When we choose this path, we create hell on earth and we don't need saving from God. We need saving from ourselves. And that's what God is so coming true. to do. That's what Jesus is coming to do. That's what the story is about. That's what justice looks like. So um, thank you for a wonderful conversation. I always say the devil doesn't us. like it when we all get together. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so good to be with you, friends at St. Stephen's. Brad, we love you. And thank uh, you. thanks so much for the time, yes. you guys. I hope we can do this again soon.